0: I was sitting through the early part of the service, um, plenty of times with tears in my eyes and just reflecting on just the the incredible grace of God towards sinners, right? Um, Broken people like ourselves who, when each of us sit and look in the mirror in the morning, despite on a morning like this, where we can just sense God's presence with us, where we look at ourselves in the mirror and think, if I'm honest, how could God love me? And yet, we, we gather like this and we have mornings of worship and celebration like we've still having. Taking the fact that we completely underestimate what's happening in the courts of heaven right now, the angels of God are celebrating beyond what we think is appropriate even, maybe. <laughs> um, death has been overcome. Darkness has been brought to light. Uh, the eternal name of the Son of God has been lifted and raised and honoured. And angels who have longed to peer into the, the good purposes of God are seeing it unfold in front of them and they celebrate I celebrate right now. And I've, I've sat in worship services like this over the course of my life. As a Christian, I've been to conferences where we've had soaring heights of just song and celebration, reflection. And the tendency in my heart is to think, if only I can recapture something about that day in my everyday. right? And that's a good goal to have, I'm, I'm sure of it. But I I feel like sometimes I've fallen into the trap that I think we'll we'll see in Micah six. And and my warning for you today is to enjoy what God is doing right now. But let's make sure that we we understand what God requires of us. All right, I'm gonna give you my big idea up front and then I'm gonna try and spend the next half an hour, thirty-five minutes. Seeing if we can, seeing if I was right by what God has said. God trumps what I have to say every time. Here's my big idea. It's not on the screen, I've just flipped it around. But my big idea, I'll give you up front and then I'm going to give it to you at the end on the screen as well. Um, My big idea is this even when we have falsely worshipped, and aligned ourselves with pursuits apart from God, as we recognise our rebellion, we will be met with the open arms of a God who loves to forgive and rescue. It's a big, big idea. Let me unpack it. It's going to be done in four movements through chapter 6 and chapter 7 of the book of Micah. If you haven't found it already, look it up, turn to it. Um, My Bible references today will come out of the English Standard Version. If you're a person who likes to draw lines in your Bible or put little notes in a notebook, let me give you the sections that I'm going to work off. Chapter 6 verses 1 through 8 is going to be the first section we're going to look at. Then the remainder of chapter 6 will be the second. And then I'll give you the, the next lot shortly. Here's the first bit. Um, Micah 6, 1 through 8. And we're going to look at, if I could sort of summarise the theme of these eight verses, it's really about the wrong type of worship. That Micah's contemporaries, the people of Israel of Micah's time, and by extension, it applies to us today, there's a wrong type of worship. Let me summarise the eight verses, and I'm going to hone in on the one that everyone's probably thinking of simply because it's so well known. Micah's brothers, his, his, the brethren of Israel, had mistakenly thought, as you read through these eight verses, you can see it very clearly, they had mistakenly thought that they could show extraordinary faith by making one-off sacrifices instead of living a life of love and service. That was... God's indictment against Israel. Now remember, last week I said that the whole book of Micah is a series of pendulum swings. If you were here last week, hopefully you can remember that. If not, the book of Micah moves as a pendulum that swings between judgment and salvation. God gives a message of judgment and then moves to salvation. Then the pendulum swings back to judgment again, then salvation. We're in the third swing of that Pendulum now. It starts with judgment again. And it will finish with salvation. And this Micah 6, 1 through 8, is actually the pendulum swing of God's judgment. And it takes the form of a legal courtroom. God standing and bringing an indictment against his people. He reads the charges to them. Now that famous verse. Micah 6 and 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Now, we often read that verse. And by the intonation of our voice, we fail to put the question mark on the end. But do you know in your Bible that it finishes with a question mark? Did you notice that? It's a bit of a strange sentence for a question, really. He has told you, O oh man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? See, the people of Israel had been trying to decide, what does the Lord require of us? And if you read through the first eight verses, you'll see that they they turned their hearts towards extraordinary one-off acts to try and demonstrate to say this is how fervent we are you see Micah 6 and 8 isn't as warm and as inspiring as you might have first thought it's actually part of God's legal indictment against Israel they knew what was required of them see that He has told you, O man. He has told you what is good. They knew what was required of them. But they ignored it. They ignored it. They chose instead to embrace bigger and grander demonstrations of their religious superiority. Israel was on trial now. If you read the opening verses, verse 2, hear you mountains, the indictment of the Lord. Even creation stands as a witness against them. The mountains, God calls the mountains to the witness stand. And he says, you've seen this. What was the accusation? God's people had grown bored with God. That's, that's the accusation. Verse 3, o my people, God says to them, What have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. Really? The nation of Israel, God says, this is the indictment against them, You've grown bored with me. You've grown weary of me. I read that as I was preparing for today, and it's so easy to read things in the Bible, isn't it, of other people and say, oh, how dare they? (laughs) How could they possibly grow bored with God? Until you stop and take a moment of sometimes harsh personal introspection, and God starts to prod you a little bit. He prods my heart a little bit, and I realise I too must face the indictment of God, God says to me, Chris, what have I done to you that, that you should be so bored with me? That you should try to find some other way in this world to find some sense of excitement or some sense of life or some sense of joy. Instead of an authentic, lived out worship, the people's faith had fallen to shows of False religious demonstration. Have a quick look at verses 6 and verse 7 of chapter 6. With what shall I come before the Lord? This is a, a rhetorical question that God is throwing back at the people, saying, this is what you're like. With what shall I come before the Lord? And bow myself before God on high. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? Sounds good, right? Have you read your Old Testament? Burnt offerings? God God asks people to do that all the time. So the first question they're sort of saying, well, is, is that what God requires of us? I'll come with a burnt offering, with calves, a year old. That was the perfect age for a sacrifice in the Old Testament time. A year old lamb or a year old goat or a year old cow. You see it over and over and over again if you read through the book of Leviticus. Verse 7, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? Now it's starting to, to ramp up a little bit. Not just one calf, not just one sheep. What about a thousand rams? Will the Lord be pleased with that? Should I come with that? Is that what God requires of me? Or with 10,000 rivers of oil? I think God's starting to make his point here, is isn't he? This is escalating now, right? What about, what about a thousand What about 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? What about child sacrifice? Will that please this God? It pleased plenty of other gods apparently in that time. The whole nations that gave themselves to even sacrificing the thing that was supposed to be dearest to them. Their firstborn, their own child. What if I gave that? Would God be pleased with that? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. Now we get verse 8. He has told you, O oh man, what is good. Right. Is it? We sometimes think that we've got to replicate these sorts of worship services like this morning, right? We've got to have the A great song list and a great song set we've got to play on a mate and messiah (laughs) nice guitar mate (laughs) and we've got to have just the right feel in the room and we've got to have the right stuff that happens and we think that's what god wants right and and look don't get me wrong this is a beautiful morning i wish we could worship like this every day not just every sunday right But our hearts are so twisted sometimes into the thinking about what it is that God really wants of us that we can start to fall in the trap of trying to replicate really high-end elite type of religious experiences. And yet God's indictment against Israel was the fact that they knew what God wanted. And instead, they chose to put on flashy religious performances. What does God want? What does God require? Act justly. That's a reference to the things that we do. With our hands, act justly. Love kindness. So not only what you do matters to God, but what you love matters to God. What is it that you love? Our hands are meant to be busy with acts of justness. And justice. Why? Because of the things that we love. We love kindness. And then he says, Walk humbly with your God. What you do matters, what you love matters, and who you are matters. We walk humbly with God. I would say at the bottom of all sin is a failure. To worship well. Now, I'm not talking about what songs we sing. I'm not talking about even if you can sing in tune or not. I've had a cold for the last week and a half. My ears are blocked this morning. I can't hear out of this ear very well. In fact, I can't hear out of that ear very well anytime. <laughs> um, but it seems worse at the moment. And I was singing there and actually earlier, and, and I was wondering, I wonder if I'm even in tune. And who's going to tap me on the shoulder? My wife would, gently and kindly. I'm not even talking about whether you can sing in tune this morning or even clap in time. I'm one of those people that doesn't clap in time very well. It usually starts well for about four bars. And then I do these ones. I'm like, I've lost. I'm just going to give up now. I can't clap in time. But that's not what I mean when I say that we fail to worship well. We fail to worship well when we worship the wrong things. True worship flows from who you are in Christ. And then it begins to transform the things that you love, which in turn shape the things that you do. Israel turned that right around and got it back to front. And so do we. We start to think, you know what, if I can just do the things that look good on the outside, that's going to prove that I'm worshipping well. But that's not what it's all about at all. It starts with who you walk humbly with, and then the things that you love, and then it works itself out in the things that you do. And God's told us that. He says, I've told you this, oh man. You know it, right? Right? So the first thing that I wanted you to draw attention to, verses 1 through 8 in chapter 6, is that often the indictment that faces us is that we have worshipped wrongly. Here's the second one, verses 9 down to verse 16. Not only have we had the wrong type of worship, but we now have the wrong type of fellowship. The next part of the judgment as you read it, verses 9 down to the end of the chapter, is closely connected with the previous issue of the people's misplaced worship. Instead of walking with God, it says the people have walked with Omri and Ahab. We'll get to that in a moment. In verse 16, you can see that. Instead of loving kindness, they loved violence. Instead of practicing justice, they have cheated and they have stolen. And thus they are sentenced to complete and utter futility. Verses 13 down to verse 15. And eventually, in verse 16, we'll see that they're sentenced to the desolation of exile. The people of this nation were about to be taken into exile because of their rebellion against God. You know, I think that one of the most maybe dangerous proverbs of the modern era, there are proverbs of the Bible, that's not what I'm talking about, a modern day proverb, one of the most dangerous maxims of the modern age is, follow your heart. You hear it everywhere. I think the only time that that advice is good is that the time when your heart abides in Christ. That the only time that follow your heart rings true. Otherwise, your heart is nothing much more than a false prophet. A wolf in sheep's clothing. Your feet will follow your heart. Your actions will follow your affections. What you love is where you'll go. So I want you to follow the trail of God's people here. Micah 6 verse 16. Have a look at it. Micah 6 verse 16 says this, For you have kept the statutes of Omri, and all the works of the house of Ahab, and you have walked in their counsels, that I may make you a desolation, and your inhabitants are hissing, so that you shall bear the scorn of my people. I want you to look at the tragic legacy of sin in the family. And he names two people here: Omri and Ahab. Just a very short excursion. I'll put the verses on the screen so that you don't have to turn to it, but you can if you'd like to. They're found in 1 Kings chapter 16 and verse 23. Micah is starting to remind the people about who they have followed rather than following the Lord. So in 1 Kings 16 verse 23 says this, in the first year of Asa, king of Judah, remember the nation of Israel at this stage is divided into two kingdoms, the southern kingdom was named Judah, the northern kingdom was often referred to as Israel, sometimes as Samaria. In the first, 31st year of Asa king of Judah, Omri began to reign over Israel. So Asa is the king of the southern nation and now Omri begins to reign over Israel and he reigned for 12 years. Six years he reigned in Terza and then six years he reigned somewhere else. Go down to verse 25 of chapter 16. Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did more evil than all who was before him. So take all the kings of Israel, the northern kingdom, combine them, take all their evil, put them into a pot, combine them, distill them, and God says, Omri did more evil than all of those people. Go down to verse 28 of the same chapter. Eventually Omri slept with his fathers and was buried in Samaria. He died. And Ahab, his son, reigned in his place. There was a uh, family business here, right? In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, the south, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who was before him, including his father, who had been more evil than all the ones before him. So we have Omri, right? An evil king who established the city and province of Samaria. It was under that king that he set up a city of false worship to a false god in Samaria. And he enticed God's people into wicked practices in their worship of false gods. Omri, who is described as being more wicked than all who had gone before him. And what was his legacy? Well, his legacy was his son Ahab. And where Omri left off, Ahab picked it up. And now Ahab is described as being more wicked than all who had gone before him, even his own father. Now read Micah 6 and 16 again. This is God's indictment against the nation of Israel. Who had they followed? Who had they walked with? They were supposed to have walked humbly with their God, right? But who had they walked with? Verse 16, you've kept the statutes of Omri. And all the works of the house of Ahab, you have walked in their counsel. So not only did the people have the wrong type of worship, but they had the wrong type of fellowship. Who had they join themselves with? Church, I want to say to you this morning, it really matters who has your ear. Whoever has your ear has also got your heart. Is it the wisdom of this world that has your heart? Or is it the wisdom of your God? What shapes your thinking? Is it what seems best to the wider population? What we hear on repeat through the feed on our phone? Or do we submit to a more ancient wisdom, to words of Life that give life. Have you stopped recently to ask yourself what it is that you run to for entertainment or for comfort or for escape? Or maybe, maybe we should rephrase that question, not what it is that you run to, but who? Who is it that you run to? Because in Micah's time, God's chosen people, his covenant children, had wildly pursued the wrong worship and the wrong fellowship. And now they find themselves on the wrong side of a jealous and holy God. And we have to ask ourselves honestly this morning, have we? Have we? Have I? Right? And it's at this point in time that that inner defence lawyer of yours starts to step up to the microphone. And it will raise his objection. This is where that sort of pious part of us, that religious part of us, that self-righteous part of us rises up, takes the microphone and says, Of course not, Chris. Of course not. How dare that you insinuate that I am like those people. The sad fact is that you are, and so am I. None of us, not one single person in this room today, or listening online, not one of us can escape the the righteous judgment of a holy God who justly condemns the guilty. That's what he does here in Micah 6. But it's not just the people in Micah 6 time It's the people in Raymond Terrace in 2023 that need to hear this, right? We are among those who are counted guilty of the wrong type of worship and the wrong type of fellowship. And God points his finger at us and we have to ask, what's our response? If we're on trial here, how do we respond? Well, there's a wrong way to respond and there's a right way. (laughs) The wrong way to respond is to deflect and minimise. What I mean by that is this. When we deflect, we say, but what about them? When God points the finger at you, you say, but what about them? That's deflection. The other way is minimising. And that's where we say, Surely I'm better than they are. So the first question is, but what about them? And then we say, but I'm better than they are, right? We falsely believe that sin is a spectrum. And when we think that sin is a spectrum, we always place our sin at the positive end. Jesus once gave, I think, an intimate insight into the prayers of two men who had gone to the temple to pray. I believe this story that Jesus gives is a profound insight into the hearts of every man and woman who must each respond to the accusation of God's judgment. It's in Luke 18, I'm going to read it to you. Luke 18, Jesus tells this story. Verse 10, it starts. It says, two men went up to the temple to pray. You got that? In Jesus' time, there's a temple. It was the designated place that you commune with God. So two people, two men, wanted to talk to God. And so they went to the place where it was most acceptable to speak with him, to commune with him. One was a Pharisee and the other one a tax collector. Two people at two different ends of the um, made-up spectrum that society has of what a sinner looks like. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. God, listen to his prayer. I'm going to read it slowly to you. God, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus continues the story by saying, I tell you, this man... Went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So I want to look at Micah's response to the accusations of God, and I want to I want you to do it through the frame of these two men that, that Jesus told the story about as they went to the temple to pray. Here's Micah's response. We're going to find it in chapter 7. Chapter 7, verses 1 through 7. This is the right type of the response. So we had the wrong type of worship, the wrong type of fellowship, and now we've got the third point, the right type of response. Let me read to you Micah 7, 1 to 7. Here Micah prays now on behalf of the nation and himself. And he starts like this, verse 1. Woe is me. I have become as what the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly have perished from the earth, and there's no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood. Each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe. The great men utters the evil desires of his soul. Thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright of them a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman, of your judgment has come. Now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbour. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms for the son treats the father with contempt, the daughter rises up against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, a man's enemy are the men of his own house. But as for me, I'll look to the Lord. I'll wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. I particularly wanna point out three things from this response, just really briefly, that I think could shape the way that we respond well. The first thing I want you to notice about Micah's prayer there is that Micah doesn't deflect. Remember what I said deflection was? When we start to say, but what about them? When God points the finger at us and says, you've worshipped wrongly, you've fellowshiped wrongly, and we say, but but what about them? All right, Micah doesn't do that. Micah doesn't deflect. He doesn't separate himself from the sins of his people. But he identifies his own part to play in the nation's failure. The very opening words, right? Woe is me. Woe is me. So Micah doesn't deflect. He also doesn't minimize. He doesn't look to justify wrongdoing or make excuses for wickedness. We do that. I've I've done that when I've been confronted with my own sin. At at the best of times, I'll say, yes, I did that. And then that sentence is often continued with the word, but, yes, I did that, but what you don't realize is what I was going through at the time. Or, yes, I did that, but, right? There's no buts in this sentence. Micah doesn't minimise. Did you notice the expansiveness of his language? He says there's, there's no one upright. They all, they each, the best of them is like a briar. The most upright of them is like a thorn hedge. He doesn't seek to minimise in any shape or form the sin of his people and of himself. But here's the third thing that's most important for you to realise about Micah's prayer. Micah doesn't deflect and he doesn't minimise, but Micah doesn't despair. All right. That's how I expected this prayer to go when it begins with woe is me. I've prayed lots of prayers like that. They're prayers of despair. Woe is me. I am a failure. I've let God down. I've let my wife down. I've let my children down. I've let my friends down. Woe is me. And I just assumed it would all go downhill from there. But it doesn't. Micah refuses to despair because Micah knows the character of his God. God gets mad. Matt dealt with that in the first week of this series. He does. He gets angry. And God will get even. We talked about that last week. He will always bring justice to the sin of this world. But while it can be rightfully said that God is a God of wrath, that's true, that's very different to saying that God is wrath. That's not how God describes himself. He describes himself in a completely different way. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, Anyone who does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is love. Micah knows this. Micah knows the character of his God, and so he doesn't despair. Micah 7, verse 7, But as for me, I will look to the Lord. He's just listed all the sins of his people that he includes himself in. And then he says, But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. He knows the character of his God, and so he does not despair at his sin. So when you are confronted with your sin, don't deflect. Don't say, but what about them? Don't minimise, right? But neither should you despair this morning. Look to the very one who reveals your sin and see in him not an accuser, but see in him a father who longs to embrace To discipline you, yes, in love, but to embrace you and to bring him home to himself, which leads us to our last bit. We have the right type of God, right? The wrong type of worship happens, yes. The wrong type of fellowship, yes. And there's a right way to respond to being heard, hearing the accusations of our God. But that's because we have the right type of God. This is found from verse 8 down to the end of the chapter. This is the closing section of Micah's entire prophecy. And we've seen the pendulum swing, right, left to right, left to right, judgment, salvation. But here it finishes with salvation. Rather than condemnation and ruin, this book finishes with a vision of the incomparable God. But this final section is sort of like this um, a liturgy, a, a, a style for worship. And I think it's a really great conclusion to the entire book. Israel's enemies will be defeated, it says, including the enemy of our own sin. The nation will be restored. It will become a magnet of hope for all the nations around it. The people will experience an exodus-like salvation, and they'll be guided back to their divine shepherd. Have a look at Micah 7, verse 18, the concluding verses of this chapter as we finish. Who is a God like you? Who is a God like you, forgiving iniquity and passing over rebellion for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not hold on to his anger forever because he delights in faithful love. He will again have compassion on us. He will vanquish our iniquities. You will cast all our sin into the depths of the sea. You will show loyalty to Jacob and faithful love to Abraham as you swore to our ancestors from days long ago. I want you to hear this morning you have the right type of God. Israel deserved condemnation. We deserve condemnation. We deserve it. We do. Right? But in the entire pantheon of gods that are out there that could be worshipped, that you could choose to follow and bow down to, you will never find another God like our God. You will never find another God, the God of this Bible that Micah knew and that has revealed himself to us through his Son. You will never find another God who forgives iniquity, who passes over rebellion, who isn't controlled by anger but instead rejoices in his own character of love. You'll never find a God who is marked by compassion or has the ability to reign victorious over our wickedness and defeat it. You'll never find a God who has the ability to completely remove sin from the equation and bury it in a place where it can never hold dominion over us again. You have the right type of God And I ask you this morning, have you given yourself to a life of wrong worship? Of wrong fellowship? Do you feel the weight of God's just and rightful anger at your rebellion? Then don't deflect. Don't minimise, but lift up your eyes to the only one who can save you from yourself. (laughs) Simply come to him like Micah did like our brother Thomas did. Woe is me. Or as the tax collector did. who would not even lift his eyes to heaven, beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And if you do this, you will find that you have the right type of God. My favourite verse in the Bible is what I want to finish with. Romans 8 and 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. For who? For those who are in Christ Jesus. Because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering in order that the law's requirements would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So here was my big idea. I told you I'd finish with it, and here it is. Even when we have falsely worshipped and aligned ourselves with pursuits apart from God, as we recognise our rebellion... We will be met, we will be met with the open arms of a God who loves to forgive and rescue. We are met with the open arms of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your love. Thank you for the message of Micah that we've reflected on over the last few weeks. Lord, the pendulum has swung from judgment to salvation and we have felt it. Lord, you have pointed the finger and revealed things in our own hearts. Things that could drive us to despair. But Lord, I thank you that we have the right type of God. We thank you for Jesus, our Saviour. We thank you for your love. We thank you that in him there is now no condemnation. And that you are a God who will point the finger and reveal sin. But you are the God who has done something about it. That you are the God who will embrace those who will fall on their knees. That you will lift up the weary. You will lift up those and restore those who will simply call out to you. Lord, we thank you this morning that just like the man, the tax collector who went down to the temple to pray, that we too, as we call out to you for salvation, we too may go home justified this day. And for your sake and for your glory, we pray it, giving thanks for the name of our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen.